Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the the shepherds of Israel, prophecy, and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, that puts Jesus' words that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost in perspective, doesn't it? It's interesting when we see that Jesus and the New Testament writers what is working in their mind as they say what they say. And a verse like that from Ezekiel is a perfect example of how they knew their Bible and they were motivated by their Bible. They knew God's word and when they said the things and wrote the things in the New Testament, including what we're about to read right now in 1 Peter, they have a reference point in their hearts and minds, which is God's own heart, God's own moral heart, and God's heart for the lost, and what it means to be a shepherd, and what a, the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd. And this morning we're talking about how Jesus shepherds his church from 1 Peter chapter 5. We only have a couple sermons left. And um, before we sort of launch into our fall um, preaching series, 1 Peter chapter 5 continues the theme of shepherding from what Mike just read in Ezekiel, starting in verse 1 through verse 5. This is the word of God. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He says that to elders. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And not for shameful gain, the King James Version, some of you may be familiar with says filthy lucre but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge in other words not lording your power over them but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Father, now we pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We humbly ask and recognize, O God, for your strength and that without your help we can do nothing, that I can do nothing. That without the unction and anointing of your Holy Spirit, everything I'm about to say will fall flat. But Father, we pray that your Spirit would carry every word with pinpoint accuracy and precision into our hearts to convict us and convince us of what is true, that our lives may be guided and transformed by your own very heart. May we live, O God, in the light of your grace and love with a proper perspective to do your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we read that passage of scripture on the heels of what Mike read in Ezekiel about shepherds, I think it's clear that the fundamental responsibility of a church leader is to shepherd. Think of the image for a moment, just take a moment and think of that mental picture of a shepherd. Not many around today, maybe not many in America, Certain parts of the world, there are still shepherds. Certain places in Italy and Greece and the Middle East, there is someone standing on a hillside watching a flock, protecting a flock. And in those parts of the world, a flock of sheep means something different than they mean here. They represent wealth, they represent food, they represent the wool for clothing and warmth in colder seasons and climates. And there is still an importance for sheep today. The idea, the image of a shepherd. The chief responsibility of a church leader is to shepherd. There's this metaphor, shepherd the flock of God. But I wonder how many pastors today see themselves as shepherds, or equally as important, how many church attending Christians feel their leaders are actually shepherding them. Even as I say this, I expose myself to, you know, examination and critique. I have to admit that in almost every church growth and church leadership seminar and conference I see, the concept of shepherding is almost completely absent. So the very notion of what it takes to grow a church and be successful in ministry today almost completely excludes this idea that scripture, Jesus, and Peter himself consider vital. Church leaders are their CEOs, their motivational speakers, their life coaches, their organizational gurus, but they're not shepherds. Timothy Whitmer in his book, the shepherd leader identifies two primary symptoms of this failure of church leaders to shepherd. And the first is a micro symptom. It's what Jesus saw in Matthew chapter nine as he walked through the cities and villages of Galilee. Matthew nine thirty six, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd, they were confused, they were wandering. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
distressed and dispirited is probably how many people in churches today feel. Frustrated because they're not receiving or allowing themselves to be cared for. Either way, there's spiritual hunger and many people stray from the church because of it. The problem is two directional, of course. Church leaders who aren't really shepherds and church members who refuse to be shepherded. The digital age we live in has of course made us rootless and anonymous. And on the upside of our devices and the digital age we live in, it has democratized our choices. We can sort of pick and choose from a distance how to engage in the world. But the downside is it has disconnected us from human relationships and accountability, which scripture sees as vital. And I'm speaking to those who are watching online. There are valid reasons to watch online. There are health concerns, people who are immunocompromised right now during the pandemic. And then there are people who want to be anonymous. So I'm glad we are offering the video. And I'm also speaking a word to those of us even present who find it hard to show up to church. That may be the first fundamental aspect of allowing yourself to be shepherded and cared for is a faithful commitment to being in church every time the doors are open unless you're on vacation or sick or working. So two directional, it's not just the members, it's leaders. My son called me the other day, you know, he moved out to LA recently, he got married. He went off to college to Chattanooga, Tennessee and was there and stayed after college. He was there for five years and he recently got married and moved to Los Angeles and he's been visiting churches and for that I'm really happy. I wasn't crazy about him going back to LA, that's where we're from, but I was ha I'm happy that he's visiting churches. And uh, there's one in particular that they've been to now several times and he called me to tell me to admit that he's naturally a little suspicious of the pastor, not that the pastor has done anything wrong, but that's the world we live in today. You go to a church and you're on your guard because you don't know what kind of tricks this joker's gonna pull because things have changed in our world, haven't they? Gone are the days when the pastor had the general goodwill of their people as a starting point. It's the opposite nowadays, isn't it? This guy, my son's new pastor, has to prove himself because of the misdeeds of others. I'm sure he's a great guy, great pastor. But my son is suspicious and wanted to talk through some things with me. And I said, well, that could be a red flag or it could be this or it could be that. And I said, why don't you ask him? Why don't you ask if you can grab coffee with him and sort of see what his reasoning is behind some of the things going on in the church. Not that they're you know, incredibly disturbing, but they're just things he's concerned about. And of course, as a 24-year-old, the average 24-year-old in our postmodern age is naturally suspicious of authority, so it's only compounded, right, if you're in your 20s. I believe that the vast majority of pastors are good, faithful, godly, leaders, but they don't get much airplay, do they? You know, they're sort of the unnamed multitude of faithful pastors. It's the rascals who get all the publicity. 
and they give the others a bad name. But there are enough bad apples out there to sort of spoil the barrel. And so a pastor, as I mentioned a moment ago, starts from a deficit. The other aspect I just mentioned is people not wanting to be shepherded. Hebrews 13 and 7 says this. Obey your leaders. Look at that. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls and they have to give an account to God for you. Don't make it harder for them, essentially is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Submit yourselves to their God-given spiritual authority over your lives and obey them. So we have this dual dilemma of Leaders not being shepherds, or when they try to shepherd, people refuse to obey and submit to them and to their spiritual authority. And this leads, Timothy Whitmer says in his book, to a macro problem that discouraged sheep wander from church to church looking to be fed. And he says that this may explain the paradox in America right now of overall shrinking church attendance, but swelling churches. So the bigger churches are getting bigger, but overall church attendance is dwindling. It's a paradox. It's almost it's like an optical illusion. You see these massive churches getting big, and you think, man, Christianity America is doing great. But it's not true. Overall church attendance is shrinking. And they're leaving smaller churches, people are, for bigger ones, and that's a symptom of the dilemma because people are afraid often that if they're in a smaller church where the elders and the leaders know them, they're afraid that one, those leaders will abuse their position, or they're afraid that their life will actually have to be accountable to an elder or a pastor, and they don't want that. As I said, we're in an age right now where, you know, you go to Walmart or you go to Marshalls and you see something and you you look at the price and then you go to Amazon and see if it's cheaper, right? And in some ways, that's freedom. It's given us, it's democratized our decisions. But now we are really in the driver's seat of our lives. In every single way, we're God. We don't need to answer to anyone. This little device will help us rule the universe. I can can get better preaching from this. I can get better music from this. I run the entire cosmos from this little thing right here. I don't need you. I've got this. I don't need other people. I don't need relationships. I don't need accountability. I can enter my name in a prayer app and somebody somewhere will pray for me. I don't need to share my problems with Bob or Jim or Sally in my own church. That will expose me too much, reveal too much of my life. I don't want that. We want autonomy. We want the freedom of anonymity. We want to come and go as we please. And this is where, now let me say this. There, there are large churches out there that are godly, good, and faithful. But even in large churches, you can be anonymous, which is sometimes the appeal. Maribel and I were at a church in California for about four and a half years before we moved to St. Louis, and they had about 1,000 people. 
and the church worship space was about this size. So there were three services, about 250 to 300 people, or you know, three, 330 in each service. And times three, you know, it's almost 1,000 people. And you'd walk by someone in the hallway, and you'd say, hey, welcome to Faith Community Church, good to see you. And they'd say, no, welcome you. I've been here 10 years. And you'd go, well, so have I, or whatever. And I mean, it was a, it was a joke. We'd laugh about it, right? I mean, not a church of 10,000, a church of 1,000. Now, that's not bad in and of itself. There's nothing evil about that. I'm not, you know, saying it's bad to have a church of 1,000 or 10,000. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is the size of a church is, is not the moral issue. It is often what happens to us and why getting lost in the crowd can appeal to us. Now, there are big churches out there that have really thought hard about how to shepherd and minister to people, and they've broken the church down in small groups and appointed leaders, so that happens. But the point that Whitmer makes in his book is a good one. We want anonymity, we want autonomy. And this is why I think online church attendance is so appealing for some, because they don't want to be accountable. Now, some. That may not be why many people attend church online, but some, for sure, that's why. Some. You can consume what you want with zero commitment or intrusion into your life. So what can be done? Well, time does not allow us to address the issue exhaustively. I suppose I could preach this in a two-part series, Shepherds and Sheep, but this morning's text focuses on the biblical idea, concept of a shepherd. So I want us to look at three aspects of biblical church leadership. I say biblical because there are a lot of other kinds of church leadership out there, but we're focusing on biblical church leadership. We believe the Bible is authoritative for our lives, that it is the very word of God, and so this is where we start. We can span out from there, that's fine, but we're starting with the word of God. And so I want us to look at three aspects of biblical church leadership. And in some ways I'm preaching a sermon to myself and the elders here, but also helping you to recognize biblical church leadership. So I want us to see three things this morning. The calling of the shepherd, the manner of the shepherd, and the reward of the shepherd. The calling of the shepherd, the manner of the shepherd, and the reward of the shepherd. So number one. Peter says in verse 1 and 2, so I exhort elders among you as a fellow elder myself, Peter says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. There's a couple key words right there that we should focus in on. One is the word elder, which is the Greek word presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian or presbyter, and the other is the word poimen, which is the word we get for pastor. So a presbyter or an elder and pastor, they're the same calling, same person. And Peter addresses the presbyters, if you will. He himself is a presbyter, an elder, he says. And he tells the elders to shepherd the flock, Again, it's an image for us, 
Familiar, but not as familiar as people living in the first century. Everyone knew what that meant. The very first portrayal of Christ was the good shepherd, and there are mosaics, ancient mosaics, of a shepherd with a sheep over his shoulders. Ancient churches in the uh, Middle East and Mediterranean world portrayed the Messiah as the good shepherd. Now, where does Peter get his theology of shepherding from? Well, Mike read the verse in Ezekiel, but you may remember Peter's encounter with Jesus after his resurrection. Peter had shamefully denied Jesus' lordship, that he even knew him outside the courtyard of Pilate. He was afraid. He was scared. He thought he might die. And when they said, he's one of the Galileans, Peter not only denied that he knew Jesus, but he swore and cursed. And of course, you know the story, most of you. He heard the rooster crow and remembered Jesus' words that before the cock crows, you will deny me thrice. And his heart was torn in two. And the Bible says he wept bitterly. And so when Jesus has a post-resurrection encounter, reunion with Peter, you can imagine how painful that encounter was. Have you ever hurt someone so bad that you almost could not stand to lift your head to look at them, or vice versa? Painful reunion, not knowing what this person was going to say or do. And I can imagine in that reunion, Peter hangs his head in shame. This is the same Peter who writes this letter. And he's looking back on that experience. And Jesus' only words to Peter, it was not, how could you have betrayed me? How could you have denied me, you traitor? None of that. There was nothing to forgive, I'm sure. But Jesus did say something to Peter, which became, I can imagine, Peter's marching orders, his dictum, his whole life, his call to action for that painful denial of his Lord. And the words that Jesus says are, do you love me, Peter? And the English does not give the real sort of texture of the conversation, Peter really responds, you're my friend. When Peter says, yes, I do, it's, it's the, and Jesus asks, do you love me? It's the kind of friendship, love that belongs to friendship. There are four Greek words for love. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright reveals this. Jesus asks again, you know, do you love me? And finally, when Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus' words are, then feed my sheep. And so this is the template for all elders, church leaders, pastors, is to see their calling as one of feeding, shepherding a flock. And Peter himself tells the elders among him, to shepherd the flock. 
Now, in the ancient agrarian society that Peter speaks into and lives in, of course the image is familiar, but knowing what a shepherd does, a shepherd does not just lead and guide a flock or feed the flock, but a shepherd puts himself in between the flock and danger. And so the shepherd exposes himself to danger to protect the flock. If there is a wolf or some type of predator, that shepherd is going to encounter face-to-face that threat. And for elders, biblically, for pastors, for shepherds, they expose themselves to spiritual harm to protect the flock. Elders experience unique spiritual attacks from Satan because they're calling, and the calling on their life to protect the flock. And this is what I, and this is, I really believe this is behind Paul's cryptic words in Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul, as well as Peter, and all authentic shepherds and pastors ever since have recognized that in many ways the affliction and suffering that they experience is them running interference on the behalf of their church from Satan. And if you don't realize What makes it such a hard calling is that's what makes it such a hard calling. Because if you smite the shepherd, you scatter the sheep. And so Satan attacks leaders particularly. In fact, many of the failings of leaders, church leaders in recent years, you know, we may want to look at them and call them hypocrites and phonies, but often when there is a moral failing, It is their inability over time to bear up under the constant satanic onslaught of the enemy. Because leaders are attacked. We're all attacked as Christians. We all experience suffering and affliction, but specifically those in leadership. It may be one reason why pastors leave the ministry are leaving in droves, and the suicide rate among pastors has been rising steadily over the past couple of decades. It feels like almost every month you hear something about a pastor committing suicide. Because the task can feel impossible at times because it's not just you who have to be good and moral and do your job, it's your whole family and you're on 24-7. And so that pressure over time becomes so, it just, it just gets to the point where you, you can't take it anymore, right? Uh, there's a lot more, I mean, there's a lot more to that, but it's the spiritual warfare that happens by not just pastors, but elders, those who lead the church. And so as shepherds guard the flock, they suffer affliction on behalf of the flock. But they do it willingly because they love the flock. And this is key for any elder or leader or shepherd to maintain the calling that God has given them is they have to not only love the Lord, but they have to love the flock. And if a leader doesn't love the flock, there'll be no way they can continue to feed and protect them. 
He has to love the flock the way Jesus loved the flock. And if he doesn't, instead of protecting the flock, he'll harm the flock. This may be also what's behind when pastors, shepherds abuse their power is they don't really love the flock. When you love the flock, you don't want to harm them. You don't want to have an affair with a man's wife in your church because you love the body of Christ. You love that family. You love the families in your church. You don't want to hurt them. You want to help them. You don't see them as an opportunity to exploit for your own personal aggrandizement or pleasure. You see them as vulnerable, as distressed and dispirited the way Jesus saw the flocks. So a shepherd has to love the flock or he'll abandon the flock because sometimes the flock can be hostile. Uh, pastors say to each other all the time, sheep bite. That's a way of saying that uh, church members can be difficult and sometimes downright nasty. Now, I don't know that I feel that way about anyone in this church, but I know it happens in churches. And um, <clears throat> we're all sinners saved by grace, right? We hurt each other. So why does God always refer to his people as a flock and leaders as shepherds? Because a flock of sheep is not like a herd of cattle. They don't need to be driven on by a cowboy on a horse, right? Sheep move slowly and need to be led patiently. And I'll, I'll just reveal a little insight into my own heart is there are things I'm passionate about that I want to instill into you all or this church over the years I've been here. And if it were not for my hard-won understanding, sometimes God having to you know, beat me up over it, to realize, be patient. Just grab everyone by the hand and just over time, just bring them along on this one issue. There are a couple issues. One of them, I'll just tell you one of them, it's, it's the fourth commandment, it's the Sabbath. It's viewing the fourth commandment seriously. The idea that the Lord's day is the Lord's day. And come heck or high water, we're gonna be with the people of God, enjoying the means of grace, worshiping, lifting up our hearts together, being refreshed and resting in God, and not engaging in all the things we do the rest of the week. And I have not been super dogmatic about it because there are commitments people have. And in the modern society we live in, I have determined that I'm just gonna lead the flock slowly and just as a, the text gives me opportunity to preach on it, I will. I won't make it a pet doctrine and beat people over the head with it. There are a couple other issues, but the point I'm trying to make is the, the image of the people of God, the church as a flock of sheep and not a herd of cattle is important. Sheep move slowly, they need to be led patiently. They're weak and also vulnerable to predators, and it's a good image, metaphor, euphemism. God protects his flock, and that's the calling of the shepherd, to patiently lead and protect and care for the flock because they're weak and vulnerable. Are you allowing yourself to be led? Or are you being stubborn and hostile? You hear the preaching, you know the word, you sing the songs, you hear the lyrics, you know what your Bible says, or you should. Are you 
submitting yourself and allowing yourself to be led? Or are you hostile to the shepherds? So that's the calling of the shepherd. Secondly, I want to talk about the manner of the shepherd. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering your power over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. A key word here, what's instructive for us, another word we think about when we think about church leaders, is the word oversight, and it's the Greek word episkopeo, where we get the word episcopal or bishop from. So to, 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 to oversee the flock is to bishop the flock, and a person who is an overseer is a bishop. Now, the medieval church made that office something that I don't think it ever was meant to become. It's just another word for a pastor, an elder. And just to give you a little bit of insight into how our church and Presbyterian churches, Highlands Church belongs to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and Presbyterian Church have sort of a bifurcated calling of elders. There is the ruling elder, which is someone who is called to shepherd the flock but is not in full-time vocational ministry, typically has not gone to seminary and is not ordained, and that's we call that the teaching elder. So it's one office, but it's sort of a two-fold um, application of that office, the office of an elder. So Mike's an elder, I'm an elder, Craig's an elder, I'm an elder, Justice is an elder. We have in here some former elders, some inactive elders, and these are men who assist the pastor in shepherding the congregation. And so I am not the chief among a group of men. I am one, uh, uh, one elder. I'm an elder. I'm an elder among other elders, and we shepherd the church together. <clears throat> and so Peter's words are to give oversight. Some of you may remember the mass suicide in, what was it, 78 or 79 in Guyana, the followers of Jim Jones. And just raise your hand if you remember the Jonestown Massacre. I remember as a kid seeing the images, you know, in newspapers and on the news, you know, sort of a helicopter aerial photo of the entire camp, you know. It's a horrific, absolutely horrific image. And it is an image that is the result of an abuse of power by someone who was supposed to protect the flock, but saw a group of people existing for his own personal gain, and ultimately, when it became expedient, liquidated the flock. And to this day, we have a saying that comes from it. If you're you know, following bad ideas or dangerous ideas, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, that comes from the Jonestown Massacre. They all drank, you know, Kool-Aid with cyanide in it. But Peter is saying that good shepherds don't have to compel and force people to follow them, right? A kind of idolatry. If I have to, if I've got like to force you, I, I can preach the word and say, look, this is what the Bible says, obey your elders. But if I've got to sort of like wrangle you and grab you, I mean, I, I've already lost the battle. I'm, I'm clearly not doing my job. So in that sense, it's not on you. It's on me and, and the leaders. Our lives ought to compel you by, the, by the, the example we live, the humble and moral and godly example we live. You 
ought to want to be a part of and follow and submit to. And so I think churches have a pendulum swing, you know, from one end to the other. Either the shepherd, leader, and elders have too much authority, or they have none. And it's instructive for us to recognize that there is a kind of spiritual authority that church leaders ought to have. And in our very therapeutic age, and I highly respect, you've heard me sort of, you probably think I bash on counseling. I don't. I, I think counseling's great. Pastors are not qualified to do often some of the hard work of mental health that professional counselors do, totally. On the flip side of that, your counselor does not have the keys to the kingdom. Your counselor has not been called to God as an ordained minister of the gospel to administer the means of grace through word and sacrament. And that is a vital part of your spiritual health. And so recognizing that there are limitations, sure, on your pastor, but there are also limitations on your counselor. And I say that because we just live in a therapeutic age, and most of us at some different point have had some professional counseling. And that's great. Praise God for it. But the point I'm trying to make is that they have limitations in what they can do spiritually. The shepherd has been invested with spiritual authority through word and sacrament. They give oversight to the flock and they watch for your souls. And Peter says for that they should do it willingly and joyfully and not for shameful gain, not for money, not for greed. Does it mean pastors shouldn't have a salary? No, but it means they shouldn't be motivated by money. And we all know about modern prosperity preachers who are like wolves, you know, dressed in sheep's clothing. They fly around in private jets, they drive Rolls Royces, we know about those people. But even in Peter's time, they had to be on guard against greed. Peter's not thinking about the 21st century, he's thinking about people in his own day. Paul himself, we know this, had to defend his ministry against the super apostles who went around speaking like the philosophers in the Greco-Roman world for exorbitant sums of money. So much so that because Paul didn't copy that model, they thought his ministry was inferior. And you know exactly how it is if something is cheap or free, you don't think it's worth much. It reminds me of Peloton, you know, the stationary bikes. I don't know if you know the story of Peloton, but when Peloton first came out, their bikes were only about $1,200. And the CEO, John Foley, said in an interview that um, people thought they weren't gonna buy a $1,200 bike because in the world of stationary bikes, that was pretty affordable and it must not be anything special. So he said they jacked up the price of $2,500 and they started flying. Because in our minds, well, if it's more expensive, it must be better. Now, it's about, now they're about $3,000 to get a Peloton. Um, and, you know, it's just marketing 101, right? In our minds, if something is cheap, it must be of inferior quality. Maybe we think the pastor that drives around and that flies around in the jet or the Rolls Royce must really have something to, you know, something of higher quality. I don't know. Uh, sometimes it's true that something more expensive, you get what you pay for, but sometimes it's not true. App, uh, um, uh, Larry would say with Apple, it's definitely true. 
But often it's not true. And pastors are warned against this mindset, against being mercenary and doing what they do for money, against seeking fame and fortune, because that's not what ministry is, that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus wasn't that way. And he wasn't domineering, he did not lord his power over others. He said, look, the Romans and the Gentiles do this thing where they lord their power over those under them, but don't be that way. The greatest among you will be your servant. I, I sort of recoil. I'm grateful when people do like the Pastor Appreciation Month cards. I really am. It does encourage me. But I, I sort of, I'm always a little, because I, I don't ever want, not for your sake, but for my sake, I never want to be in that position where, you know, the, you know, sometimes people love on you, and that's great. And I do feel loved when that happens. But I, I never feel like, well, let's implement every year a church anniversary where the pastor and his wife are celebrated or something like that. That's not what it's about. It's not why I'm in this ministry. It's not why I do it. Gentle and lowly was Christ's way. That's the name of the book out there in the lobby, by the way. It's not sexy, but it's Christian. It's biblical. It's godly. And finally, there's the reward of the shepherd. We've talked about the calling of the shepherd, the manner of the shepherd. And then finally, there's the reward that God promises to shepherds. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the ancient world, the crown or the wreath was a metaphor for imperial power. You know, the Roman Caesars, they had this, this crown or this wreath, and sometimes it was made of actual leaves but often it was made of gold. It got to the point where it became sort of, you know, this wreath of gold. In fact, what we think of today as a crown, which comes from sort of like medieval England, where there's like this big hat, you know, with velvet on top and gold and gems, that developed later on. But early on in the ancient Near East, the Greco-Roman world in the Middle East, the crown was just a wreath of, um, of leaves or, or gold. And so what Peter is touching on is a competing metaphor. In Isaiah 28 and 5, God tells the prophet that God himself is that crown. It says, that I don't have a slide, but it says, In that day the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. You know, everything in this life fades away. This is true for all of us, right? Anything you work, you've worked hard to acquire, whether it's a nice house or a car or whatever it may be, even your money inflation is going to, you know, it's going to take a hit. All of, all of these things, all your possessions ultimately are liabilities. It gets old. They fall into disrepair, homes, cars, everything. But the motivation for a pastor has to be the glory of God ultimately. Not wealth, not possessions, not fame, notoriety, reputation. And not to beleaguer our sermon this morning, I know I've been, I'm, I'm kind of, we're going over time here, but just to give you an image into like the Old Testament, and if some of you are familiar with the, the, the Israel in the wilderness and how all the tribes were, were situated around the tabernacle, you know, all the 12 tribes, this huge 
vast swath of land, but the Levites, the, the priests, had no land because they ministered in the tabernacle encountering God? And as a pastor, I've thought deeply about that. And I realized that their inheritance was God himself. It wasn't the land that all the other tribes got. It was God himself. Their inheritance were the mysteries of God. They encountered God face to face in the tabernacle. And sure, they didn't have the wealth of their neighbors, but they had something different. It was unfading. It was the very glory of God himself. And this is what Peter says is ultimately the inheritance of the shepherd. It is an unfading crown of glory, God himself. And Peter says that when Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, comes again, he will reward with glory every pastor who has served faithfully and every elder with an unfading crown of glory. Isn't that encouraging? It is a reminder that everyone who shepherds is ultimately an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, Jesus himself, who loves us, cares for us, guides us and protects us, and feeds us with his word, and ultimately will bring us home one day. Let's pray. Father, thank you, O God, for our hearts being exposed to the powerful truths in the word of God. Our faith, O oh God, is in that you have spoken to us, you speak to us. We pray, O oh God, that not just here in this church, but all across the world, that the flock would be fed by faithful shepherds, teachers, leaders, overseers, elders, those who care for them and help us, especially in the times we live in now as we are exiles in this land that we live in, as we await the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment of the living and the dead, and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth, help us to remain faithful as faithful sheep, obedient. Oh God, we pray for your grace and strength. In Christ's name, amen.